Hello and welcome to How Many Geese. I'm Jack Baddams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously... Then we are the natural selection. On today's show... So podcasts go in one of two ways. Goose-based or inferior. Vanuatu's got that tribe there who worship Prince Philip. (laughs) What? That's not true. That's true. Jack, we've been to the moon and the International Space Station goes round the Earth every 90 minutes, but no one knows shit about eels. (laughs) We look for funny stories. We look for weird science. We look for anything and everything out there. But what I'm going to tell you now is literally just a story spans over 2,000 years of scientific research. And it links Aristotle, Sigmund Freud, and Carlsberg beer. Wow. And that story is where do eels come from? (laughs) Featuring the historical hunt for what was at one point the absolute holy grail of science. The quest for their testicles. (laughs) (laughs) A tale as old as time itself. (laughs) Yeah. Now, to appreciate this question fully and what it really means, we need to first unpack a little bit more about the eel itself culturally. So, there are many, many species of eel, but we're talking about the European eel, Anguilla anguilla, which today is critically endangered. However, for much of history, it was incredibly abundant in European rivers and streams. So much so that across all European countries, it featured in cuisine. In Sweden, they had it smoked or in beer or fried. In Italy, they were boiling it in tomato sauce. In England, it was jellied in stock or fried with eggs into a cake. Some estimates put eels as historically accounting for between 25 to 50% of all fish in English rivers. Wow. With medieval England eating more eels than all other marine and freshwater fish combined, and even paying their rent with eels. That's how abundant they were. This is one of the things I was going to I was going to um, mention. One of the few things I know about eels is that in the Doomsday Book there are records of uh, people paying, you know, in a year 75,000 eels for the holdings of X amount of land or whatever. Yep, so I've got some figures. So during the 11th century, eels were often used instead of money to pay rent. Landlords would take in-kind payments, um, including corn, ale, spices, eggs, but above all, they valued eels. By the end of the 11th century, over 540,000 eels were being used as currency in England every year. It was only in the 16th century... So what's that, 500 years later, that the practice dropped off? And like you said, the Doomsday Book lists hundreds of examples of people expecting payments in eel rents. (laughs) You could also eat them during Lent, which over the 40 days and 40 nights of Lent would see meat outlawed as it was considered a reminder of carnal appetites and desires and very fiery red meat. But the humble, seemingly sexless eel was considered the absolute opposite and so slipped through the church law. (laughs) The sexless eel. Well, they didn't think it had. It, they didn't think it had a sex, or they didn't think it had sex. So this is a real key point here. In that eels were so ubiquitous across Europe and medieval culture. Right back, it wasn't just in the medieval period that they were eating them. Right back to Aristotle, who just to benchmark this is three hundred and eighty to three hundred and twenty BC. Over a thousand years of chopping and cooking and eating, not a single eel, ovary or testicle had ever been seen. No eels had ever been seen mating. 
nothing seemed to register that eels had anything resembling, you know, males and females. Wow. And so our quest begins, Jack. Not just for the origin of the eels, but their very being of not fitting in with any other known animal. Since the beginnings of Greek science, it had been recognised that all animals owed their origins in some form or another to reproduction. For most, they knew that this mechanism was sexual and that new examples of a species were produced by coupling of a biological male and biological female, but exactly what each sex was contributing to the process was admittedly not very clear. But Aristotle began to approach this question and he basically theorized that females were providing something and the male was providing something but obviously they didn't know about cells and all the rest Mm -hmm. so he had it that the females provided the flesh and the males in their seed provided the breath of life but no eel had ever been seen as i said in flagrante (laughs) no egg had ever been seen and in over a thousand years of eel consumption no ovaries or testicles had ever been found inside one And so Aristotle tried to understand what was going on with eels. And he landed, obviously, not a thousand years of eating them with Aristotle, but still long enough to be like, hang on, what's well, people? People here? will have been eating eels since, you know, I'm sure like the Mesolithic or whatever, you know, like... That's a great point, but I'm not entirely sure whether the Mesolithic period was considering the ovaries or testicles. Whereas, <laughs> <laughs> I guess I was benchmarking this with the quest for the ovaries and testicles, starting with Aristotle then having a thousand years of yeah, eating but what i'm saying is that even by the time of aristotle yeah. people people yeah. may have been like we don't know where eels come from but we know where well, you know uh, horses come from because we've watched them give birth yep yeah, yep yeah, yeah great points and so with that aristotle landed on the idea that eels occurred through spontaneous generation if which... only if only eels could spontaneously <laughs> generate out of, out of like the quantum realm at any point just pop into existence (laughs) (laughs) they're definitely one of the handier animals to deal with spontaneously (laughs) you know spontaneously generating giraffes big problem spontaneously generating eels you know well it depends what number they're going to generate he didn't just have eels as spontaneously generating it was a theory for many things things like flies a lot of animals that if they couldn't understand the mating they might put it down to spontaneous generation what out of like a non-living things out of a wall or a stone or something like that so aristotle's theory was that elemental matter when subjected to the breath of life would produce different types of creature so for example he had flies emerging from dung barnacles just emerged on the side of boats and eels he had as just emerging from the earth i mean he's not you know alone in this because well as we'll see the theory basically just got picked up because Mm. no one could understand where any of these things were coming from. And so it had wide acceptance for hundreds and thousands of years. And not everyone necessarily agreed that they came out of mud, but all natural philosophers shared the view that in the absence of anything which resembled the mating or having the equipment to mate, they must just be coming out of thin air, basically. So for over a thousand years, this was the most plausible explanation. Like I said, there were various twists on the genre. So you had Pliny the Elder uh, in the ancient times who thought that maybe they rubbed themselves against rocks and particles of them just fell off and those particles caused the spontaneous generation. Yeah. There were some naysayers throughout this time, just to be fair play, but they weren't necessarily coming at it scientifically. But there are noted 
you know, scholars throughout antiquity and into the medieval ages who disagreed with this, basically saying, why would God make eels different to any other fish? But they, which kind of is both scientific and not scientific, <laughs> uh, but, you know, it was thousands they, plus they, years they ago. Were along, along the right lines, they, you know. Exactly, right? It's like, why would a, the process that made everything make this one thing they were more right than everybody else but they also were coming at it like maybe virgin mary situation okay they were not right at all (laughs) well if you think there are animals out there which are parthenogenic okay that can just be females producing females but it came back to there are still no ovaries in them so even if they were doing virgin mary stuff there's still no ovaries in them so even the virgin mary famously had ovaries yeah and we go right the way up to medieval England, where eel fishing was so popular. Like I said, Doomsday Book and everything else. The theory was still around. And at this point, people were believing that eels were born when hairs from horses' tails fell into the water. I wish we... Could you imagine how much more content we'd have if we did how many geese in medieval England? <laughs> <laughs> By the time of the Renaissance in the 1500s, we're now at a point where Aristotle's work had been translated and around for two to three hundred years, and everyone again was believing him into the Renaissance period, and the authority was so much that there was no debate on why are eels, there was no debate on where are eels, what are eels, how are eels, everyone just accepted that eels simply just were. (laughs) Now, Doubters arose, they came and went, like I said, with different takes on there must be something, there must have to be something involving males and females, but we're now at 1,800 years since Aristotle, Mm -hmm. since the quest for what is going on with eels, and people have not yet worked it out, not a single reproductive organ has ever been found on an eel. But as we move into the 16th century chinks in the eel's deceptive armour begin to emerge, with scholars at the time beginning to disprove the ideas of spontaneous generation. Because it wasn't just eels, you know, they still hadn't quite worked out what flies were doing. Yeah. Now, previously, spontaneous generation had been completely accepted that flies, for example, just appeared on rotting meat. However, here comes a name. (laughs) Ulysse Aldovrandi. yeah, I, like, I love the commitment to that, so I'm going to go with it. Ulysse Aldrovandi pointed out that maggots on meat only came about from meat that had been touched by other flies. And so people were beginning to say it's not entirely spontaneous. And he then basically worked out that there has to be some connection and theories were suggested about them laying eggs. Uh, but it wasn't until the invention of the microscope, 17th century, 100 years later, that the eggs were able to be seen for the first time and people were like okay flies aren't being spontaneously generated we're going to take those out further work continued to disprove it but eels remained the impossible question the bastion of ambiguity and no one was able to find a sexual organ or we haven't even mentioned this yet jack or a baby eel anywhere Do they not? and people they... began to just accept that it would never be known. They not find like the elvers and stuff though, because don't they run through the rivers in like really high numbers? Or they probably thought they were something else, didn't they? Like the glacials or whatever they call the little ones that come back. So, put a pin in that. Okay. Now, no one had found a baby eel anywhere, and people were basically beginning to think that it had never happened, that they'd never know what was going on with eels until their genitals, possibly without their consent, were thrust. <laughs> back into the spotlight 
after an Italian surgeon found ovaries in an eel from Italy. <sighs> Big news. The legitimacy of this remained in question for decades until an anatomist found another set of ovaries from a different eel and published those. And so it was set. Eels have ovaries. So how did they just how did how did they suddenly just find them? Are they particularly difficult to find? I assume they are because it took them literally one and a half thousand years or whatever it was. I'm going to keep going for a bit more. Okay. And then we're going to work out why it took so long. Okay. But having now found the ovaries, the race for the testicles, (laughs) the testicles, if you will, was on. Very good. Because just to really like hammer home how important this was to the time, okay, it rocked the core of biology, the fact that no one could explain eels. Because even if all of the eels were female, even if they never found a testicle and we end up at that parthenogenic, which they wouldn't have known, but females of a species just producing asexually to make clones, even if that was considered, naturalists couldn't work out or prove anything about how eels reproduce because they'd never found an egg, they'd never seen a baby. But also, this was a period, we're now in the early 19th century, okay? The term scientist, which this is a great spin-off fact, I think, the term scientist was only coined in 1834. We're at a real turning point in terms of, like, enlightenment, okay? Science is trying to establish itself, And biologists are trying to put out laws and rules and this is this and this is this and this is this. And being an early field, it's basically a case of, you know, the chain was only as strong as its weakest link. Mm -hmm. And if they couldn't, if they couldn't crack eels, then what did it mean for the scientific method? What did it mean for anything? Everything fell apart. Everyone in sort of 1800s Europe was trying to understand eels. (laughs) So enter Sigmund Freud. Yeah, I wondered how he was going to play into this. Oh, or rather, I feared how he was going to play into this. <laughs> <laughs> so, before Freud had any of his theories, like the Oedipus complex or penis envy, he studied zoology. Oh, I didn't know that. And he had quite a time investigating the European eel. I'm sure. At he did. the ripe age of 17, 1873. Freud entered the University of Vienna. He gravitated towards medicine, and under that umbrella, he was studying philosophy, physiology, zoology, and his studies with zoology were under a very um, Darwinist professor who had the intention to prove that eels produce sexually and set out to do this by looking for the male eel. They've had the female eel for close to 100 years now since finding a female. They're still looking for a male. 1876... Freud is helping his professor with this mission. So he's with that three years into his studies at a zoological research station in Trieste in the northeast of Italy. The female was found in Italy. So let's go to Italy to look for the male. Mm-hmm. And Freud's job for four weeks was dissecting. Now, numbers vary, but hundreds of eels trying to locate a testicle. And it was a case of cut open the eel find the testicle, no testicle, bin the eel, cut open the next eel in a small, dimly lit room. That explains the rest of his career. Doesn't it just? (laughs) Now it all makes sense. (laughs) Yep, yep. Hunched back over hundreds of eels trying to find testicles, and he went from that to Oedipus complex and penis envy. Do it to anyone. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Until finally... Around about eel number 400, 
He found it. Yeah, wow. He found the testicle in the male eel. Sigmund Freud. 1876. 2,000 years since Aristotle posed the eel question, Sigmund Freud found the eel's testicle. And so slowly, the eel question, which I keep, like, that is how it was referred to in mm. the literature and everything, began to unravel. And now we're getting at some of the points that you mentioned earlier. So careful observers worked out that what had long been taken for several different kinds of animals were in fact just the one. Uh, People had known for years that eels would periodically disappear from European waters for long periods. And what had once been thought to be four distinct beings were in fact all Anguilla Anguilla, just at different life cycle stages. So there was a tiny, tiny larva, very, very thin, with huge eyes, which would float around in the open sea towards Europe. They thought that was one thing. There was the shimmering glass eel, which was known as an elva. So this was a few inches in length, and it had visible insides, and it would be found around coasts and at the mouth of rivers. Then there was the yellow-brown eel, which is now what we're talking about, an eel, which you would catch in ponds. And this is the eel which you know, is the standard, quote-unquote, the adult or whatever, yep. um, what everyone was eating. And it can hibernate in mud. It can move across dry land. Like, we're not even talking about how amazing they are as a yeah, fish. they're extraordinary things. This is the quest to understand them, okay? And then finally, there was the silver eel. Now, this is a long, very muscular eel, which is found out at sea. And what's actually happening here as you possibly mentioned, is it's four different life stages. The eel metamorpho metamorphizes, I don't know how that conjugates, across the different things. And that last one, the silver eel that is found out at sea, when that last metamorphosis happens, the eel's stomach dissolves and it lives off its fat reserves alone. And it's that eel which has the reproductive organs. And it's only when it reaches that stage that it starts to have them. And so, to go back to maybe like why it took them so long or why they found it just then, it's entirely luck that both the female that was caught, the two females that were caught, and the one male that um, Freud landed on just so happened to be yellow eels changing into the final stage, the silver eel. And the silver eel, the silver eel is when it's going back to the sea. Going back to the sea, yeah. correct. But remember, it wasn't just a quest for the testicles because it's where do they come from full stop right and so having found the testicles and the ovaries humanity turns its sights to the next chapter where are they coming from enter johann schmidt who is probably the most committed marine biologist in the world <laughs> and i said at the beginning we're bringing in carlsberg beer yeah. Schmidt married his wife in 1903, age 26. His wife just so happened to be the daughter of the CEO of Carlsberg Brewery. Mm. Now, it's not just that link, because clearly, loving married life in 1904, one year later, for the eagle-eyed, eagle-eyed, eagle-eared listeners, one year into marriage, he set off to find the origin of eels, which was a mission that took him 18 years at sea, <laughs> And was funded by Carlsberg Beer. We're not saying that he'd got his sights set on her for particular reasons, but his heart was <laughs> always with the eels. Yeah. So, we're now in the 20th century, and Johan has set off 1904 to find the eels. Come on, Johan. 
They had worked out, like I said, that the different life stages were all the one eel. So what was his method? Well, he would just cross the Atlantic back and forth <laughs> with increasingly... Jack, I'm not lying here. With increasingly finer nets, <laughs> catching whatever he could, and then travelling in the direction of the smallest eels he found. Because he reasoned that where the eels are smallest, that's where they're hatching. Wow. Come on. Yeah. 18 years. <laughs> 18, 18 years. years. And when they are... Imagine like a willow leaf, okay? Like they're, they're very small mm -hmm. and you have to count the vertebra on them to A, confirm they're like an eel larva and B, sort of work out what direction you're moving in yeah. to, okay. you know, establish the direction, everything. Like but this you, is insane work. You've got 18, 18 years to years. specialize it, though. So you'll be a dab hand at counting well, eel vertebrae by the time you get to year 12 but like how com how how committed was he to working this out well, how much did he hate his wife <laughs> <laughs> he just could not bear an <laughs> another day with the in-laws but he's happy to take their money to look for eels yeah exactly so just to give us a sense of what was going on in the 18 years that johan was looking for eels here are some of the events that took place uh, while johan and by extension all of humanity because remember all of science is basically hanging on johan's result here so in the time that it took johan out at sea the following happened the world's first vehicle license plate was issued the wright brothers became the first humans to fly a plane einstein submitted his paper on relativity all of World War One, <laughs> the Sinn Féin party was founded to fight for Irish independence. Henry Ford released the Model T automobile. All of World War One, <laughs> slavery was abolished in China. The Oreo cookie was invented. The Panama Canal was built. And in case you didn't hear it, all of World War One. I. I love the idea that he just comes back and he's just like, did I miss something? Dude, it's not even that he came back. Like, he was out there. The battleships were around him. And <laughs> Johan is just going around with his net trying to catch ever smaller eels. Like, talk about a needle in a haystack, okay? These things are, like, two inches long and they're see-through, okay, in the Atlantic Ocean. And that's what Johan is looking for. I like for. the idea that, like, the warring sides, you know, when they first saw his boat, they were worried it was going to be an enemy threat or whatever. But by the sort of second year of the war, they're just like, oh, that's just that's just Johan looking for eels. Yeah, or like even, you know, you've got two battleships apart firing at each other and he just sort of saunters through the middle and they both just cease fire and just wait for him to get through before picking up again. His purpose is more noble than our quarrels. <laughs> but eventually, he found them. And he triangulated the smallest eel larva in the Atlantic to the Sargasso Sea, which is an area off the coast of America in the Atlantic Ocean. And different to other seas which are bordered by land, the Sargasso is bounded by different currents. And so the fast-moving water, you know, around it all shuts off this calm area. And it's a weird place. Like, when I say weird, the Bermuda Triangle is in the Sargasso Sea. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it is mile upon mile of 
seaweed. And just to give it some sense, I'm saying he found them in the Sargasso Sea. The Sargasso Sea is an area about a thousand miles wide and 3,000 miles long. It's about the size of the United States. Right. But he only had 18 years at it, to be fair, so... (laughs) (laughs) But you say that because he, once he'd done that and he traced them all back, that was it. The eel question, by and large, it was thought was answered. Mm -hmm. But to this day, we're now in 2023 AD... And eels still have their secrets. Because within the Sargasso Sea, an area the size of the USA, we don't know anything about where they go once they get there. No one has ever seen eels reproduce in the wild. No one has ever seen an eel egg in the wild. No one has ever seen an eel hatch in the wild. No one knows about what triggers their metamorphosis in the wild or how they navigate across the sea. And the Sargasso Sea, it has been worked out, is the breeding ground of the European eel, but also the American eel. And no one knows how, which eel knows to turn off at which river. Because they will cross from an area somewhere in the Sargasso, somewhere on the other side of the Atlantic, an eel which could have spent over a hundred years, because... There's ones in, there's, like I said, I haven't even got into how mad they are as fish, but there was one in Sweden which basically lived in a well and it was known to be 155 years old. Holy shit. And they can spend their life in a random pond up some random stream in a random bit of Europe and then one day dissolve their stomach, grow ovaries or testicles, become a tube of muscle power across the Atlantic Ocean to an unknown place in the Atlantic Sea, have sex in a way that no one's seen in the wild, eggs hatch, and then the lava, which basically the sea is surrounded by currents, like it's kind of walled off, drift, some of them magically up streams in America, some of them magically all the way across Europe to then go back up the same kind of river that their parent might have been on. Wow. Like... Jack, we've been to the moon and the International (laughs) Space Station goes round the Earth every 90 minutes, but no one knows shit about eels. (laughs) Wow. They refuse to be understood. I, I for one, respect them for that. But, and if I have won anyone else's respect, I want to end on this, because like I said, at the beginning... I mentioned they're critically endangered and historically they were in their hundreds of thousands and millions and millions. They were a form of tax revenue. But since the 1980s, European eel populations have declined by 98%. That's that's big, isn't it? In 40 years. We've gone from villages paying, like you said, 60,000 eels a year in rent Mm. to them just disappearing in about 40 years and it's almost a double-edged sword because on the one hand they're this insane mystery which is so engrossing in you know just refusing to be understood means that they're also impossible to try and conserve well that's what i was gonna say is well i say impossible to try and conserve just don't pollute the rivers you know (laughs) yeah well yes just look after things better but that's what i was gonna say like do we even know what's going wrong if we don't know that much about Mm. their life cycle they can induce mating in captivity but they basically just jack them up on hormones and that generates the final metamorphosis and everything else so it's very uh artificial yeah so we have sometimes you look at you know 
and it will say no one's ever seen them mating. Technically false because it has under research conditions. But in the wild, we have no idea what they're up to. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. I had no idea. What a story. What a tale. Yeah. The eel. All right, we're here with the birder segment of the show where we check in on a bird from the app. This week, we're off to, I was about to say, Southeast Asia, nowhere near South Africa, (laughs) to let you know about the... Hammercop. Hammercop. Yeah, it's Hammercop time. Hammercop time. As bird names go, maybe one of my favourites. Yeah. We're here to let you know about the Hammercop and how you can learn a bit more of the Hammercop using the app Birder, who have very kindly sponsored this show in a section we are calling... You'd better believe it. Hey, finally. It's only taken him eight weeks (laughs) (laughs) to get that together. That's right. Birder, thank you very much for sponsoring the show. If you're just joining in this week and you're not familiar with the app, check out some of the last episodes. But to let you know a bit more, it's a bird watching app that turns discovery and exploration into an outdoor game so you can get much more familiar with the bird life in your area. You can learn facts about what you see. You can build up your list of what you're looking at and you can find new areas to go and see birds. Um, unfortunately for me and my desire to see a hammercop, it's a little bit far. Um, they've recently been seen in Kruger National Park, which mm. there's no bus will get me to Kruger. <laughs> but for those of you listening in South Africa, you may well be familiar with them because I understand they're pretty common. Out yeah, there, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we should describe, you know, what a hammer cop looks like. Yeah. It's got a very, very cool name. I think it looks like someone's taken a shoe bill or the concept of a shoe bill mm-hmm. which is the big badass stalk that we've spoken about before with a massive bill and if you've seen the the most terrifying bird in the world yeah i think so it's like someone's taken that and shrunk it and then just sort of taken the edge off a little bit but it's still got quite a big beak uh long legs wades through the water of that sort of heron stalk vibe if we lived in pokemon world the hammer cop would evolve into the shoe bill. That's perfect. Kind yeah. of. So if you can imagine that going backwards from a shoe bill, you'll land at a hammer cop. Its name is Afrikaans, meaning hammerhead, because the shape of the head, mm, shaped like a hammer. Nice. Its name in English sounds like the world's worst Robocop spin off. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, it's a movie I would watch. Yeah, we all, we all. I'll say it. <laughs> no shame but birder doesn't just tell you where they are it doesn't just let you log them but it also gives each species a little page and you can learn some cool facts about them with the hammercop building the largest nest of any bird in africa being made up of an estimated at times ten thousand sticks Whoa. first of all what a study <laughs> <laughs> that was given to an intern <laughs> Yeah, but did you know this? Were you familiar with their nest? I've seen a hammercop nest. Have you? Not in the wild. Oh, Chester Zoo have got some hammercops. Okay, and they have made a massive nest. Yeah, just in one of the trees in the big aviaries. Mm. Uh, but I think the the amazing thing about hammercops is they're only half a meter tall, fifty six centimeters high. Yeah, just under half a kilo, four hundred and sixty grams. Of, yeah, they're not big so when you think about some of the species that live in africa you've got huge things like martial eagles and you've yeah. got lots of storks and you've yeah. got you know all sorts of things that could take the crown for the biggest nest yeah. in africa yeah. and it goes to this little 
yeah. half a meter. But it's not even that they're making a nest. They seem to be essentially compelled to do it. Like a pair of hammer cops can just make six or seven nests. Oh. And they'll just use one. They'll just, really? And then the other nests will be used by other snakes have been found in there. Mammals have been found in there. Like they just build up. They're like a... What's some... Um, like a housing provider. Like pro- uh, oh, I was going to say property developers. Well, but, yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. But I was thinking that, you know, <laughs> put up an estate somewhere, hammer cops just building nests left, yeah. right and centre for everyone to use. Yeah. But they sort of start it, they get some mud and sticks and clump it together to make the bottom. And then it just becomes a pile, pile, pile. But it seems to be like an internal nest kind of thing. And in a world where there are, you know... Africa's got the weaver birds weaving a nest. Mm. They've got the swifts making these nests very intricately out of their own spit. Then a hammer cop is just like, I'm just going to get 10,000 sticks. <laughs> and pile them all up pile in this tree. <laughs> <laughs> and make it work for me. Yeah. But yeah, these platforms are massive, used by other animals. So, And it's not, bless it, the most elegant of bird necessarily. Like I said, it's kind of like the the, the first form of a pokemon so it's a little little cute little clumsy mm. i really like this description that i found it may hold its wings out when running for extra stability <laughs> so just these tiny little running around trying to build these huge nests i love them they are they're great yeah they are fantastic little birds check out the bird app if you're living in africa to find out if hammer cops are near you uh, their distribution is there you can find out more about them and once you're out and about you can use the species guide to learn more about other birds you may see out there and with that being that on this our final episode jack we have listened to all of your suggestions yeah, <laughs> for this they, segment they weren't great and they were well they 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 were peaks and troughs <laughs> um but we do just want to say that if anyone listening wants to get in touch if you've got a way of naming the birder segment yeah yeah, if you can think of a better name than discretion is the bird apart of valor, then uh, <laughs> we're all ears. Yeah. But no, a very big thank you to Birder. So get out there, download the app, start sharing, competing, and connecting today. It's free. And it's, it's great. Yeah. All right, it's time for that part of the show where we take one of nature's magnificent creatures and we pit it against Roddy Shaw in a fight to the death. Now, today's animal has been submitted on Instagram by Ali, and it is the sarcastic fringe head. <laughs> now, hailing from the Californian coastline, the sarcastic fringe head is a small saltwater fish that's about 30 centimetres long uh, and found anywhere between 3 metres to 75 metres deep. They're a species of blenny, so that's the kind of fish you want to be thinking about, you know, blenny, goby-style vibes uh, that do a lot of sitting on the floor and the seafloor and rocks, things like that. That's maybe the best way I can describe them. They're sort of brown in colour and spend a lot of time hiding in things, burrows in the sand, shells, rocks, crevices, drinks cans that have gone down, all that sort of thing. Now, what about that name? The fringe head bit comes from appendages that they've got above the eyes, but how about the sarcastic bit? Well, they're fearless and extremely aggressive, charging anything that approaches their burrows. Although I'm not entirely sure that sarcastic is the word that I would use to describe those activities, but that's what they've gone for. But the most amazing thing about the fringe head is their mouth. Now, Roddy, I want you to go onto YouTube now and type in the name of the fringe head. This has got to be seen by you to be believed what you're up against because it's extraordinary. Listener, if you're able to, I 100% advise you to go onto YouTube and type in 
sarcastic fringe head. And look for a video of them fighting. And Ruddy, I would like you to explain what you see when you see sarcastic fringe heads at war. Okay. Right. Let me give this a sarcastic fringe head. Okay, here we go. I've got a fish. He's poking out. And another fish has poked his head out. They've seen each other. David is giving it some lovely dulcet tones. And oh my God, what is that? <laughs> oh my God. It's like it's like it's got a sort of origami umbrella face. <laughs> so, so to explain what happens is they, they fight sort of mouth to mouth. That's how they do the fighting. But their mouth, if you imagine like a fish mouth open that is not half of the story because their mouth like opens to become almost like this giant demonic butterfly looking shape a bit or, or like imagine like the predator like with its extra sort of appendages on it but way more extravagant stranger things style that sort of vibe yeah it it it, it barely registers as making sense <laughs> like it yeah this is one of the weirdest things of I'd never heard of these. No, hang on. I'd heard of the name Sarcastic Fringehead just on one of those like top 10 weird animal names that you need to know. But I had no idea that they did this. No, no idea. Me neither. So, thank you Ali for the suggestion because I it was it was a good time researching this. Do you know what? It's like if you honestly, I'm still trying to kind of wrap my head around this. If you put an umbrella like against your face and then open the umbrella up into you so that the handle is pointing away and just have the the kind of I don't know what do you call it the, the, teat, the cone the teat of the umbrella in your <laughs> mouth <laughs> I'm sticking with teat and just like that because it's not even trying to explain it but it's trying to explain the size of it like it's huge, huge. it is literally oh, yeah. like in a relative sense I reckon it's an umbrella yeah, do you reckon? Yeah. It's, do you reckon that the sort of diameter of it is like half the size of the fish? Yeah, big, isn't it? Anyway, the question is, Roddy Shaw, how many sarcastic fringe heads are too many sarcastic fringe heads? Okay, first of all, as you said, I don't know if I'd necessarily go with sarcasm on what they're doing, but we're gonna just acknowledge that sarcasm is the lowest form of wit. <laughs> because it did say I, I googled the official term for sarcasm which is using irony in order to mock or convey contempt and they're named apparently the sarcastic fringe head because of their fearlessness and aggression which you know I, I think it's a good name but i'm not sure it's a accurate name but also there's nothing ironic about their face <laughs> like, it's not you know if they i don't even know what would make a fish ironic like, if its defence was to, like, blow a bubble and then, like, get in the bubble and be in the air or, you know... I, but that's just, like, opposite day. Yeah, like, I, I don't even I, know... I, I can't think of a single no, sarcastic animal. And we will... In due time, <laughs> we're going to come back to that. Okay. So... Highly defensive of their little burrows. I, yeah, to anything. You know, they... They particularly like the old mouth-to-mouth -mouth with another sarcastic fringe head, <laughs> but they will chase everything away. How big are they? About 30 About centimetres. Long. So they're, they're uh, yeah, they're not particularly have I, big. I feel like previous... Have I fought any fish that isn't a shark? 
We have done one before, and it was the lamprey. Oh, yeah. Remember the okay. lamprey with this little sort of ro- parasitic fish that I think you turned I into did, a I did bunting. turn that into bunting, as is, you know, the only way to fight lamprey, as we all know. This is very standard <laughs> stuff here. But the sarcastic fringe head with its umbrella face, I mean, I don't know, do I? There's loads of people talking outside. Oh, yeah, I can hear him free. Feel free to just wait. Okay, public engagement gone. There you go. Charged at them like a sarcastic fringe head out of the borough. <laughs> Much like a sarcastic fringe head to, you know, defend my territory. So... Oh my god, maybe yeah. that's maybe the sarcastic fringe head has a podcast and in its studio <laughs> opposite me. <laughs> oh, here we go. Oh, and a sarcastic a sarcastic fringe head's podcast like sticking with the sarcastic theme. It's it's going to have sort of ironic hot takes. Oh my god, it's going to be yeah, it's going to be edgy. It's going to be but edgy in the most boring way. Like that kind of basic energy like, you know, I don't think The Simpsons are funny. Yes. Breaking Bad isn't that good. Um, you know, cake is overrated. Yeah, you know, exactly. Just all these hot and spicy takes. <laughs> and so the question then becomes, as these things always do, is how many sarcastic fringe heads are on that podcast? So podcasts go in one of two ways. Goose-based or inferior. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking more like, is it someone who just is it a podcast where they're on their own? I think I feel like a sarcastic fringe head. I could see it having a podcast by itself, just talking about hot takes. Or is it the podcast where it has all of its friends and it's like ten microphones, every and they've all got the same opinion about everything. I think what's happened is that there are enough because these sarcastic fringe heads, they're you know, they're living in burrows, they're clearly in squalor, they've got a podcast, you know. <laughs> what kind of animal would have a podcast? <laughs> yeah, they're probably in their, you know, late twenties, thirties. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> chatting away. White white men <laughs> thinking they're all that for the world. <laughs> desperate to get their views and opinions out there you know um and i can imagine a number of sarcastic fringe heads all having individual podcasts but the reason they're being so noisy is because they're doing some kind of team up episode crossover crossover, inviting everyone around to settle some kind of debate that doesn't even exist like how many geese could you take in a fight or something completely (laughs) ludicrous (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's sarcastic fringe heads all over. Exactly. And they're making an absolute racket, and we then, you know, have to address the situation, come bursting out. They come at me with the mouth. Are you mouth-to-mouthing them? No, I'm not. Well, I'm not mouth-to-mouthing. Do you know what I think actually beats this sarcastic? I think this. I think this is the first team-up. Yeah. This is the first time you're getting tag team in here, because Great. I think what crushes a sarcastic fringe head is beating it in the podcast charts. (laughs) (laughs) 
because I imagine the sarcastic fringe head probably tracks the numbers like every day to see what's out there. <laughs> and yeah. seeing another podcast overtake it is probably giving it a real crushing sense. Yeah. And it, and it, and it, it, you know they'll slope off back to their own individual podcasts and be like how many geese is not even that good anyway. Everyone who listens to it, it's really stupid. Exactly. Exactly. So I think <laughs> This sarcastic fringe head fight is in many ways a team effort. <laughs> yeah, we're all in it. We're all in it. Listeners, anyone listening now, this has gone beyond any level of meta that any previous fight has happened to us now taking on how many sarcastic fringe head hosts do we think they are? Maybe two, and they're both yeah. like taller than average sarcastic <laughs> fringe heads, you know. <laughs> The sarcastic, they maybe met, you know, somewhere in the region of five to six years ago. Yeah, on um, some remote island by ex- Scott. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I'm going to say two particularly long sarcastic fringe heads <laughs> by outperforming them in the podcast charts. <laughs> Okay, this is a question from Ruth Eliza Mack on Instagram, and she asks, Jack Baddams, if you could have the legs of any animal, brackets, still only two, okay. which would you pick? Which would I pick? Just the legs. Now, I don't know if this is like a superpower situation where, you know, if, for example, a kangaroo, do you want to jump very high? Yeah. Um, I'm going to say that the legs scale to your body. So if you pick pigeon, for mm. example, it's mm. not your body with actual pigeon legs right. okay. coming out. I think w- once in the distant mists of time, we have answered a question, which was if you could have one limb of being an animal, because we spoke about just having one. I think we ended up with like a gecko's hand. Because we were like, what would be really good? And I, I remember us talking about you'd be great at rounders and cricket because you could catch. That is very distant mist. The distant mists are... And we talked about if you just had one shaved gorilla arm. <laughs> <laughs> you just dominate in the world of professional <laughs> arm wrestling. Yeah. Um, so I think, we, I think we focused on arms because I think we immediately ruled out legs because if you just had one leg of an animal... Yeah. What's the point? Yeah. Like, it's not useful. Yeah. Whereas one arm can be useful. Yes. So now, taking that, taking what we learnt okay. in whatever season that was, of how many geese? I don't know what I learned from anything. <laughs> well, it was basically <laughs> that we thought that, yeah, one leg of anything was useless. But two legs of something cannot be an insect. No, cannot be more than one, more than two legs. So you can't have, you can't take on six. Ah, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So, okay. Right. So... I think they, so they've got to be doing something good, haven't they? They've got to be an advantage that you can have from having these animals' legs. Do we think if you take, say, the legs of a cheetah, because they are built to be fast on four legs, am I going to be faster with the legs of a cheetah or has all the effort that evolution has put into the cheetah negated by the fact I have my body? Correct. I okay. think if you want to be, f- if you're going for speed, yeah. basically your only option here is ostrich. Right. Got yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Because we both uh, share striking similarities <laughs> to ostriches. 
Um, okay, yeah, that's fair. Uh, but you could have Cheetah. I mean, sexy, sure. Yeah, yeah. I think ostrich. Oh, yeah, okay, I like ostrich. Um, red kangaroo. Bouncy. Just kick the fuck out of everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know if this is true? I've heard that kangaroos cannot move their hind legs independently. So they're basically, they can only, they're like fused in tandem. I'm pretty sure I've seen kangaroos scratching their ears. But with their front leg. Because, mm. I mean, if you think about it, if you are doing like, if you are, the way they move, if you jump, if their legs got out of sync, yeah. going at like 45 miles an hour, yeah. that could really, it's basically a double spring that they're kind of, yeah. you do want that happening Locked together. In. Yeah. Yeah, but it's not like they're accidentally going to suddenly just jump with one leg, are they? Well, I don't know, like but then even when they kind of move around, yeah. sl- they do a kind of like hop, right? Like a they rabbit, sl- like when it moves its legs forward and then jumps its front legs forward and then jumps its back legs forward yeah. at the same time. Yeah. I do know the thing about kangaroos that they, is it that they can't move backwards? Because on the Australian emblem, they have the emu and the kangaroo and it's because they're always moving forwards and they don't what? they don't move backwards so kangaroos and emus apparently can't walk backwards and they're f- on the australian emblem as like a little bit of uh a little bit of what's the, what's the, what's the word like her- heraldic you know yeah. whatever as a little bit of a message yeah. to we're always moving forwards because these animals can't go backwards australia australia the country that like, okay, we're going to wade into some territory here, but is like opening mines, you know, kind of not left, right, and center. But then they also approve like dumping stuff on the Great yeah, Barrier Reef, and they do, they do like it. They like to kill a lot of sharks. <laughs> <laughs> what has your research taught you about kangaroos? Kangaroos aren't capable of moving each leg independently. Their hind legs are locked in together. That's wild. Yeah, I don't want kangaroo legs. <laughs> <laughs> How can you know? How am I going to get out of a bed? How am I going to do anything? Well, jumping. Yeah, yeah but that, that's not the answer to everything. Okay. Um, well, I mean, are you on any country's heraldic symbol? No. Well, not as far as I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I've not checked, you know, Vanuatu. <laughs> and they, Vanuatu's got that tribe there who worship Prince Philip. <laughs> what is that true yeah that's not true that's true so you are there's a he visited prince philip when he was alive obviously like visited vanuatu in god knows whenever like the 60s or something and this tribe village group of people commune you know uh just sort of deified him Wow. And um, he sent them some pictures and signed stuff, and they kind of hung it all up. But yeah, it's it's like a tribe on Vanuatu who viewed Prince Philip as a god. <laughs> See where this goes when people ask us what legs would you have? What the question was? What two legs would you have of any animal? And I'm on a tribe in Vanuatu worshiping Prince Philip as a god. Well, we've all learned something. In I'm gonna say not many hop skips or jumps, if you pardon the kangaroo pun. Show me another podcast <laughs> that can straddle that in 120 seconds. Okay. Right. So, 
Well, that's game-changing, I think, for the kangaroo. Yeah. Because there are, uh, you know, lots of occasions sidling past people in doors that are too close together where it's very important <laughs> that you need to move your legs independently, yeah. you know? And listeners, if I can tell you anything about Jack, <laughs> my God, does he love to sidle. Given saying, that, surely two sideways crab legs. <laughs> yeah. Given your penchants for sidling. I'm just saying, you know, sometimes you've got to squeeze past people and two massive kangaroo legs that can only move at the same time yeah. and therefore must only be able to move forwards because they can't... Could, could you jump... If you So if you had to go side on to squeeze through a gap, how would you move... How would you do that as a kangaroo? Luckily for them, the outback isn't famed for its sort of close passages <laughs> for trying to get you know past someone at the freezer aisle <laughs> yeah. I think the australian outback widely viewed as a very open territory okay well i think that uh, answers my question as someone who doesn't live in the australian outback <laughs> they're not going to be much use yeah um are you just stuck at ostriches then i like ostriches um i like uh cassowaries for self-defense purposes mm -hmm. uh, but less speed sacrificing on speed for self-defense um what about ducks feet yep okay that could be quite useful yep don't need to buy flippers why would you scale up duck feet in which well yeah to completely scale up because a duck a duck Foot to hip, mm. but flipper flipper flip to hip. Yeah, right. Of your aquatic birds, yeah, flipper to hip on a duck is mm -hmm. quite short, and so to scale that up so that you are still six four, yeah. the flipper is going to be monstrous. <laughs> it's going to be like you know when you click the corner of an image on Microsoft <laughs> Word and do that, right? But what about like flamingo? Oh, long legs but webbed. Long legs but webbed. Yeah, good shout. Yeah. That could be useful. That's what I'm thinking. Webbed feet could be useful. Or, I could, you know, I could enter swimming competitions and things. Sure. Um. So, yeah, flamingo's a good shout. Okay. Yeah, flamingo's good. I've got mine. Okay. Horse. Why? Because <laughs> I hate shoe shopping <laughs> so much. If only someone could nail a bit of curved metal... Into my toes. <laughs> I'm just saying, first of all, it would be, well, yeah, okay, toes, one on each foot. But, like, I'm size 13, and mm. I can't, like, I live in central, like, Oxford Street, mm. not to besmirch other shopping districts in the nation, I would say is maybe, like, the kind of flagship retail space of the country. It's fucking big. Right. Right. And I've been I've been into every shop on Oxford Street that sells shoes. None of them do above a twelve unless you order them in online, where you have to like pay for them and then sort out delivery yourself and everything else. I went into like the Nike Mega Store, yeah. okay, four five stories tall of Nike. It had three different DJs. <laughs> <laughs> Not a single pair of size thirteen. In the Nike store, there's a, a four-story shoe shop had more DJs than shoes that fit someone who, yeah, we're tall, but we're not. We're not Yetis. Yeah. You know what I mean? We're not Shaquille O'Neal. Exactly. Yeah. Right? So, and I've had to go through this recently. I went to a wedding. Uh, I had to look for shoes and 
I hate it. So, if honestly, if anyone listening out there has any fucking connections <laughs> to the shoe to cobblers, <laughs> okay, so, get in touch. <laughs> but horses don't have to think about shoes. Don't have to. A horse has never considered its own shoes. A horse lives its life. It goes about its business, and then every now and then, someone just rocks up and does its shoes. That, to me, is the height of luxury. Yeah, okay. So, you say on Oxford Street there's not many shoe shops. Are there many blacksmiths? <laughs> <laughs> but this, but the blacksmith comes to the horse. Ah. Right? So, it's going to make a home appointment to your flat. There's, there's where, the, um, where the, the stables for the police horses in central London are next to... I think it's they're on the edge of Hyde Park. Anyway... There's like it's like park and then police stables and then a road the other side and the stables are on like the second story so sometimes you're like driving past and the horses are like have balconies and they're like looking out at you they're not near a blacksmith yeah blacksmith is clearly coming to sort them out I just hang around outside the police station wait <laughs> on for the, the same day wait for the blacksmith shoe pro- and then I'm going to the Nike store to fucking tap dance in front of the DJs <laughs> wreck their little yoga studio floor with my yeah. Newly ferried hooves. Size 13 hooves. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Horse. And there we have it, listeners, as the sun sets on another series of How Many Geese. But have no fear, as we'll be popping up over the summer to keep you going with your goose fix. We've got some big plans coming up, and we can't wait to share them with you. Thank you for all your support on the podcast, whether that's been liking, sharing, interacting with the show, or downloading the free Birder app, which helps us out too. It won't be too long until we pop up again, but until then, we'll see you next time.